Welcome to the Lemper Report Live. It's Halloween, so our first insight is all about this day that kicks off the prime selling season for our supermarkets. According to the National Retail Federation, Americans are expected to spend just over $3 billion this year just on candy. But didn't start out that way. Halloween's origins can be traced back to the ancient Celtic festival known as Samhain, which was held on November 1st. It was believed that on that day, the souls of the dead returned to their homes, so people dressed in costumes and lit bonfires to ward off spirits. More on Halloween in a bit, including the best and worst candies. Today, an in-depth look at the USDA's $792 million internet plan, an Hawaiian cocktail, the continued food power of TikTok, and how Questlove sees the food world. On the bullseye, we have questionable marketing that comes under fire. So, Sally, let's get started. First up, you know, people are going to go trick-or-treating, but it looks like there are some scary additives um, in Halloween candy that we should be concerned about. Yes, there there have been for a long time some additives in our foods that um, some people have petitioned to have, you know, to have um, the FDA, you know, take off the list is generally generally recognized as safe. Um, in particular, Skittles had a controversy recently for one of these additives, which is titanium dioxide. Now, this additive, which um, is generally recognized as safe, um, has been, you know, has been studied and has been found to cause some health problems. And then there's, there are some other ones, TBHQ, BHT, and there are synthetic dyes like red number three. Now, as a mom, Phil, I can tell you um, that when my kids were smaller, when they were around the preschool age, that I definitely would notice this really big difference if they had a food with these dyes in it, that even more than sugar, it would create it would create a hyperactive reaction. Yeah. And, you know, it's so important, especially as as kids are going out trick or treating, that, you know, parents are aware of what these ingredients are. Um, and this comes from the Environmental Working Group. And, you know, the ones that you mentioned are really serious. Um, also, red dye number three. And you mentioned Skittles. And what's interesting, uh, candy prices for Halloween are up about 13 uh, percent over a year ago. That comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, that's the largest ever jump in the price of candy. And Skittles um, and Starburst have the biggest price increases, 35% and 42%. And uh, the lowest price increases um, are Crunch and Butterfinger bars, and they are only up 6 to 7%. So clearly what we're seeing is the price of candy this year is a lot more than it was, you know, last year, and it's going to continue to go up. Um, also, what we found is that there was a survey that was just done by CandyStore.com. Um, they had um, over 30,000 of its customers uh, surveyed um, about the best and the worst Halloween candy. So you want to take a guess what's the best Halloween candy? The best. Um, it's got to be something chocolate. You're right. Reese's uh, <laughs> peanut butter cups is number mm -hmm. one. Snickers, number two. 
three Laffy Taffy, mm -hmm. uh, but they they um, have an asterisk here, except for banana and grape flavors. Uh, then Baby Ruth, then Kit Kat, and um, the worst Halloween candy. You want to take a guess at that? Um. Oh, mounds. I don't like mounds. <laughs> oh, really? The mounds isn't even on on the list. Um, the worst. Um, and I'll start with number ten, going up to number one. Mm -hmm. Bit of honey, um, then good and plenty. Number nine, I like good and plenty. Of course, I haven't had in a long time. Number eight, licorice. Number seven, Smarties. Number six, Tootsie Rolls, which I don't understand at all because I love Tootsie Rolls. Uh, five, Necco wafers. Number four, wax cola bottles. I didn't even know they still made those. Uh, <laughs> number three, peanut butter kisses. Number two, circus peanuts. Those are those, you know. Um, weird tasting little things that look like peanuts, but they're melt in your mouth kind of thing. Yes. And the worst is candy corn. But ah. what um, what we found is that now um, there's somebody by the name of Amy Keller. Um, she's a member of the Spangler Candy family, the company that you know, is behind things like Dum Dum Lollipops. And she is coming up with a new kind of candy that um, supposedly would be great uh, for Halloween and the environment. Tell us about that. Yes, Phil, this is great. Um, as you said, you know, that that her family, um, they are the ones that make the dumb, dumb lollipops. You know, my kids always get those in the do doctor's office and they love them, um, especially mystery flavored. Um, but this is, you know, this is a candy that uses 96% of it is fruits and vegetables um, and really, really healthy things in there like carrots, beets, sweet potatoes, squash, and pumpkin, all these like really, really um, highly nutritious superfoods. Now, the, the, this effort is to um, keep ugly fruits and vegetables or discarded ones from going into the waste bin and actually being being used to make a product. I love this idea. I love this product. I, I haven't tried it, so I don't know what it tastes like. The only thing that I, I have to say about it is, is that it's very expensive. And so we've got to find a way to make, make products like this more affordable. And a lot of that comes with with volume. Mm -hmm. um, before we leave Halloween, uh, there's a survey that came out uh, from Statista. And what they found is this year, uh, you know, I mentioned three three billion for candy. Uh, we will spend about ten point six billion uh, for the Halloween holiday. And what they surveyed is the most popular pet Halloween costumes. Now, I find this very odd and very strange. Um, you and, and Tony have pets. You have dogs. I hope that neither of you are actually going to dress up your dogs. <laughs> but 10% um, of the people um, dress up their dog as a pumpkin. Mm -hmm. That's very strange to me. Um, 5% dress up their dogs, their pets, not just dogs, um, as a hot dog, which is like really strange. Um, 4% as a superhero. And the one that I really am struggling with is that 4% dress up their pets like a cat. 
Okay. How do you dress up, you know, a cat like a cat? I don't get it. I don't get it. And then 3% dress them up as a bumblebee. But, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a cat. It's a cat. Okay. Let's talk about some serious things. So uh, the Biden-Harris administration um, is giving $759 million to bring high-speed internet access to, to communities across rural America. This is great news. You know, we've talked a lot on Farm Food Facts about how farmers don't have internet access. But in looking at the details of this, it's, um, I don't know. I don't think it's a boondoggle. But just to give you some idea, in Alaska, um, they got $30 million. And what they're doing for that $30 million is connecting 301 people, 17 businesses and three educational facilities to high-speed internet. That's it, 301 people. Now, in um, Alabama, uh, $24 million and they're connecting 4,646 people, 154 farms, 96 businesses. Um, in California, here in California, uh, 17.6 million to connect 321 people, seven farms, six businesses, and three public schools. And probably the one that makes me laugh the hardest, maybe cry because this is our tax dollars going to work. In Guam, they're getting $29 million. And what they're doing with the $29 million is to connect two people to high-speed internet in Guam. Two people. I I, um, don't want to be a downer. But with, you know, this this three quarters of a billion dollars going for Internet access, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. What do you think? Well, this is part of President Biden's bipartisan infrastructure law, where um, this is supposed to provide 65 billion to expand high speed Internet to communities all around the US. And although what you were just telling us, you know, about it seems crazy to spend that amount of money to get two people online. Um, overall, um, this is important because it's important for our farming communities for them to be able Absolutely. to have this high-speed internet so that they can um, take advantage of technology that um, that helps with, um, with sustainability and managing waste. So those are very important things. This also helps um, people who start small businesses get up and running. And another really big thing, Phil, is that, you know, this might help provide access to more food options to people in areas that, you know, if they don't, they can't have internet, then they can't order their groceries. They can't, they can't order food. So um, I think that that internet has gone beyond being a luxury for us. And now it is is certainly a necessity, like kids need to have the internet to, to keep up in school. So um, I'm, I'm really happy to see this happen. And hopefully, you know, there those those numbers, you know, those two people in Guam that what they're building there will service more than two people. Yeah, we can only hope. We can only hope. Um, let's go to Hawaii. 
And uh, Hawaii has a new canned cocktail. Um, it is called the Kohana Hawaiian Agricole Rum. Um, they are going to be bottling daiquiris and sold as ready-to-drink cocktails. Um, now, what's important about this story is that Hawaiian agriculture um, uses local sugarcane, uh, produce like pineapple, um, that mixes with the rum to make its cocktails. So we're going to see a whole new uh, realm of, of cocktails that are coming in. And the ready-to-drink cocktail market is now $782 million. Um, this product is going to sell for about 13 bucks for a 12-ounce bottle, which I think, you know, to your earlier point about the candy, is really expensive. Um, I'm not a rum drinker, so I don't know what a bottle of rum actually costs. But <laughs> I, I've just got to think that, you know, it's kind of cool that these people are doing this in Hawaii. Um, it's good for the agriculture. Hopefully it tastes great. Uh, but I have to question the price. Yes, it is expensive. Um, it much like some of the other, you know, uh, craft cocktails and and food products we see in, you know, that come from local communities. But what is wonderful about it, and you know, that we we've talked about this um, this market for canned cocktails and how how so many are appearing now on the shelves and they seem to be more popular. But what's great about this is that they are incorporating what is what is grown in Hawaii. And it would be so wonderful to see more of this across the United States in local communities when something is in season. Let's support those farmers. Let's yeah. take that and make it an ingredient in something that we're serving or selling. And it's easier to do that in a restaurant format um, than it is in developing a product and getting it on shelves. Um, but they're doing a great job and they're using pineapple and lily koi, which is passion fruit, which is grown in Hawaii. And this is really going to help out the farmers. Yeah, no, I think it's terrific and looking forward to trying it and tasting it. Um, talking about trying and tasting foods, it looks like TikTok has more power than ever before as it relates to food. Um, there's a new survey that came out from MGH, um, and what they found is 38% of TikTok users across all generations, uh, that's approximately 52 million uh, people, have visited or ordered food from a restaurant after seeing a TikTok video about it. They also found that when it comes to millennials, more than half of them, 53%, have done the same thing, visited or ordered food from a restaurant after seeing it on TikTok. And the reasons uh, that it's, it's being driven is 72% said that the video had appetizing looking food. 45% said it was unique. 42% said it looked like a fun place to go with family or friends. 38% said it showed a cool way of serving the food and drink. 37% said it showed a cool atmosphere. 30% said the restaurant had a great view. Um, and, I, and I really think that um, for those supermarket retailers and those food brands that are not using TikTok, it's a major mistake. And I see, um, I get alerts from TikTok, you know, every day. And, you know, you've got Kroger on there, you've got Whole Foods on there. But I think every retailer needs to be using this platform when you have this kind of impact. 
Yes. And, you know, it also says in this study that, you know, that people were willing to travel farther and spend more money. 30% said they traveled longer. 28% said they visited a restaurant and spent more money than they normally do. And so it is TikTok as a platform is working. And even if it isn't here forever, as some of these these trends aren't, um, it is here now. And it has and it is a great influencer on what people are eating and buying. Absolutely. Um, Questlove. I happen to really like Questlove. Um, I loved his movie last summer, Summer of Soul, uh, that came out. Uh, People laugh that he has 15 jobs. Uh, But now it looks like another job that he's got is making a plant-based Philly cheesesteak. He comes from Philadelphia. Um, He's really getting into the food world. Uh, Tell us a bit more about what he's doing. Uh, with with food and and his commitment to it, he's so wonderful. I agree, Phil. And he he's just a man of many talents, and he you know seems to have have his hands in a lot of things. Um, so he he is on the board of the Food Education Fund, and what they are doing is they have they've started this Future of Food Entrepreneurship Program. Now this is for underserved communities where you, he's going in and finding high school kids that want to get involved in a culinary arts program um, or with an established food tech company, which is fantastic. It's 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 give it's teaching skills. It's giving opportunities to those who may not otherwise get these opportunities. But it seems as if Questlove has always had, um, you know, had an interest in the food world. Um, I loved reading about how he used to host these food salons in New York in his apartment where he would get about 70 people in his apartment and have a couple of chefs there and they would try some different things. And one of those things he talked about was he had a Shake Shack style burger up against an impossible burger and had people trying and see what, what they liked best. And that that's when he found out that he liked the plant-based burger better. And so, you know, it's that um, it was this idea, this concept of his about like trying something that is a different version of a food you love, maybe plant-based, maybe healthier, maybe gluten-free, you know, and, um, and finding, you know, better things that we can eat. And, you know, when you talk about the, um, Impossible Burger against Shake Shack, Danny Meyer, who owns Shake Shack, uh, or the CEO of it, um, you know, was there um, Uh as as well, which is very cool. And what I really found interesting, the more I read about Questlove, um, when the Roots came back, they lived in London for a while, and then they came back to the U.S. and they signed a new record deal. And the record company, um, I guess, complained that they had a full-time chef on their payroll. And uh, and Questlove basically said that, you know, um, it's the food that makes the community and, and gives people, you know, the the ideas for music and everything else. So, yeah, very, very cool, uh, very cool guy. And um, I would like to taste his plant based Philly cheesesteak. Having gone to school in Philadelphia, I love Philly cheesesteaks, but I've never had a plant based Philly cheesesteak. So with that. Um, I'm lost in the supermarket um, this week. Nora Minow joins us to talk trends, exercise, and all things food. For the complete episode, just log on to supermarketguru.com, and here's what she had to say. What do you say to people that say, you know, eating healthy is too expensive? 
Um, I, my whole philosophy as a dietitian is that food, um, and eating healthy should not be expensive, stressful, or time consuming. And so I've kind of built a career and sometimes it doesn't get the sexiest headlines, right? No, no fad diets, nothing crazy, but just sticking to basic fruits, vegetables, things like that. And that's where I do start to, um, I do start to get concerned about adding more labels and classifying food in, in other ways because that can create a lot of stress around food choices uh, when it can be kind of quite simple. Find foods that you enjoy. Eat when you're hungry. Don't eat when you're not. You know, focus on fresh, focus on whole. Um, it, it sounds like super simple, but it kind of is in that degree. Um, going back to basics there. And you look at foods, especially we know a plant-forward diet or a heavily plant-based diet, there's loads of research showing how important that is for prevention of disease and long-term health. And you can buy a can of beans, you know, can of beans for 75 cents. And that's, you know, two to three protein portions for a day. So it really doesn't have to be. Um, as expensive, I think where we start to see the prices getting jacked up is these kind of fancier brands doing all of these, you know, more exotic ingredients or starting to slap more of these labels on the front of the pack because once you know you have more of these labels, you could charge more for it, right? Because it's it's more exclusive. So um, I, I'm I'm very strongly and firmly against the argument that healthy food has to cost more. On today's bullseye. Barilla, a $4 billion company that was started in Ponte Taro, Italy back in 1877, who now sells in more than 100 countries, has come under fire. The brand is the number one selling pasta in Italy, but is facing a class action lawsuit brought by two consumers here in the U.S. who are saying that the brand's advertising and packaging intentionally misled them to believe that the pasta was made in and imported from Italy rather than in Iowa and New York. To be fair, the pasta packaging clearly states made in USA, but the lawsuit contends that the Barilla packages features the colors of the Italian flag. Barilla's advertising, they say, also misled them with its slogan of Italy's number one brand of pasta. A federal judge actually agrees that this slogan could mislead shoppers. This lawsuit is asking the court to prohibit Barilla from using Italy's colors and the slogan in their marketing and packaging. Oh yeah, and they're also seeking a payout, as they said that they overpaid for the pasta. These two consumers said they purchased multiple boxes of Barilla and therefore are seeking damages. For decades, I've urged shoppers to read labels and companies to be clear and accurate, and I've called out companies that have not. Back in 2007, I took Elizabeth Wee's grocery shopping. Beth is a national correspondent for USA Today, and her cover story, Buying American, It's Not in the Bag, described our almost day-long shopping experience. The objective of the story was to show that it's hard to tell where food comes from. We found cheeses that looked like they came from France, but were made in Wisconsin. Guacamole that purports that it was made in California, but came from Mexico an apple and caramel combo pack where the apples came from the state of Washington, but the caramel was made in Chile. As I told Beth then, and I say it here again, it shouldn't have to be this hard to buy our foods and know where they're made. Is the Barilla package misleading? 
Is this company intentionally trying to dupe us? What kind of responsibility do we have as shoppers? These are all questions that will have to be answered in the courtroom, along with just how much pain and suffering these two claimants have endured over their purchase of several boxes of pasta. My hope would be that brands would be more careful not to mislead, and frankly, that consumers would learn how to read. So Sally, any comments today? We do have a couple of comments today. Mary Miller says that she loves Smarties. So I agree with you, Mary. I will always enjoy yeah. Smarties. <laughs> and um, and jo- Joan Vueger, I'm sorry, Joan, if I am saying your name incorrectly, but um, says that it would be it would be cheaper to use Starlink. 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 Yeah, uh, especially when you look at that. And Joan, you you are a thousand percent correct, uh, as you always are. Joan is one of the best food uh, food technologists and food consumerists that is out there. So, uh, Joan, thanks for joining us and thanks for adding that very important comment. And thank you all. Uh, for tuning in. Don't forget our archives are up on supermarketguru.com. Please add your comments to our social media feeds or just send me an email, phil at supermarketguru.com. And we'll see you again, same time, same place next week, right here for the Lemper Report Live.